In this episode, we're wrapping up our conversation with faculty. That's right, Curry. Let's finish what we started with exploring academic, discipline, and classroom cultures. Jade, you brought this up earlier, a tact, well, a practice that you you embrace in your classroom, and it's it's to call a student a leader. It's to call a student um, successful as a, in argument. You know, it's it's to sort of attribute in this, you know, you said reciprocal sort of respect, right? Um, it's, it's an affirmation, right? Which is not a merit-based system. In other words, the other, the opposite way we go about teaching is uh, if you do, this is kind of what uh, Rika, you were saying about the sciences. If you do well, you have success. If you don't do well, pick a different major or go work or whatever, right? And what I think is interesting about that is I think that manifests in a lot of different ways, right? I think, Sean, you know, to think cynically about what we do in the classroom is we just are content generation, sorry, content generator, and our students are content generations, and we just exchange with each other, right? Like, you give me papers, I read your papers, I give you lectures, you write more papers, we just, there's that economic exchange. And if that's based in a, if that's a merit-based system, that's where we see students sitting in the front of the classroom, fading to the back of the classroom, right? But I think you flip it, Jade, when you, when you, when you take that position as a facilitator, right? When you, when you say, I'm gonna go out of my way to call, to affirm in you a value I see, a skill set that I see that might be just budding, um, but that nobody else has taken the time to affirm in you before, right? We, we disrupt that merit-based system, I think, in the classroom. Maybe who knows how far that extends, right, uh, out into the institution and beyond, but it's a place where I feel like I've got some agency. But, but I wanna say one more thing, and, and, and we can follow this or we can go in a different direction. When I first started thinking like this, so like the student-centered classroom, I'm gonna decenter myself and disrupt my own authority. I think my mindset at the beginning was the classroom's a level playing field. Like all I have to do is create choice, choose the topic you're interested in, and then create space. They'll jump in. And then now I'm just sort of fielding questions. But students bring their cultures to the classroom too, right? They bring the expectations of the class. So the classroom is not a level playing field. Like I've got to do some constant disrupting too, to really play that role of a affirming facilitator well. I see some people shaking heads. It sounds like that's resonating with, with a few of us. It's huge in science, right? I mean, that's part of the reason they avoid, they, right? A group, a cast, if you will, avoids it, right? Because they've had a bad experience at some point. They've somehow been devalued. That aspect of their personality, their existence has been devalued in a way that makes them apprehensive, depressed, anxious, uh, you know, a, a whole host of things that they bring into the classroom. I mean, it's almost every STEM teacher and some others in other fields, right, has had this experience where something content wise happens in a classroom and somebody, one of the students bursts out in tears because they're having an anxiety attack or some horrible repressed memory. I mean, I don't mean to sound like I'm trivializing it, but it's happened. I mean, when, when you have to stop your classroom because this person is having a legit anxiety attack, that is a wake up call that you know, you're an astronomy grad student. You have no idea what's going to happen to you 25 years down the line. You have no idea if you decide to be a teacher that these kinds of things come into your classroom. You're not trained for that. I, you know, when you're a STEM graduate student, most of you are not trained for teaching. Yet something like 96% of them end up teaching, right, at some point during their experiences. So what are we as human beings, instructors, facilitators, whatever the hell you want to call us, what are we as humans missing? by not 
recognizing and understanding that at that point in your training, if you will, that this is going to be something that I'm either going to be able to contribute to the solution or the problem here. And I don't know that. I don't know that the people when, you know, when I was in grad school, I don't know that they knew that either, frankly, just to be perfectly honest with you, that was one hell of a caste system where I went to grad school for sure. I did not have a pleasant experience in graduate school. So it sort of set me up for that way as well. And to kind of follow along what you were saying, Curry, about, and everybody was saying about, you know, this education is a transaction kind of thing. I think we're starting to see that in the way that um, a lot of instructors and facilitators start thinking about grading students in the classroom. We're, we're starting to see that shift, right? That there's a culture shift, if you will, right? This paradigm shift in what does it mean to grade to someone? And is that even a legitimate way to think about this when you consider everything that comes into this classroom, all the different aspects that contribute to what you're doing in that classroom and how those students experience the discipline and the materials and the content and what have you. So it's caused me to definitely rethink, how do I, how do I grade them? Because I, I don't want it to be a, yes, you did well. And so you got a good grade. No, you didn't do well. So you didn't get a good grade. You're, it's so much more than that. I don't want to be contributing to this devaluing you as a human being. And you had already set yourself up for failure when you walked into my classroom. And that is the one thing that I want to remove. If, if I do nothing else, I can give a crap about the astronomy. If I can remove that aspect from your life that you feel somehow devalued by what I think is probably not an okay experience. I can't claim that I understand all your experiences, but something happened to you that wasn't okay that caused this. What is that? You're not born with that, right? You don't come out of the womb with that. I, I don't understand that. So I see it as part of my responsibility to try to set up that in terms of the culture, right? To try and I, I try to break down some of those walls, those barriers, and to help them understand, I want to grade you, since I have to grade you, right? I'm going to grade you on part of the process. It's not just about, you know, the product and the end result here. The process is important. This thinking that you're going through, the discussions that you're having. I don't just need, you know, a homework assignment and, oh, it's right or it's wrong, and that's your grade. That's not what we're here for. The process is important. And I want you to understand that that process isn't about the science. It's about you being a human being and having a human brain and learning how to articulate ideas, whether they be about science or not, and communicate with these other humans and get your point across. That's really all it is, or at least I hope I want it to be in my classroom. I don't know. So so here's an interesting thing on that, Rika, and I, and I, I agree with all that. And it, you know, from a societal perspective, at least in, you know, in my field, Having industry certifications is huge. I mean, you being able to have a CompTIA A plus, Network Plus, Security Plus, and that is exactly what you you know you said we shouldn't have. So here we are trying to do this in this world, in this society, where if you want to get this job, I mean, if you even want to have your resume be seen by somebody, if you don't have these industry certifications on there, you you might as well just save the paper, save the electrons of sending it and doing the application. You have a certification, that's your ticket in to any interview. And, and if you don't, so how do we teach? How do we, you know, subjectively teach, assess, and everything else in a society like that? You know, it's kind of like these gears mashing on each other where we're trying to do something here, but then beyond us, you've got this society that's just based on, you know, standardized tests, right? Standardized right. tests, exactly. Right. The SAT are going, but you know. What about all these other things? It's so much, at least in the GRE, grad school subject exams. All it's, that it could not be more 
disadvantage disingenuous frankly it's just disingenuous so i mean and that's kind of our world so i mean i i guess i don't know i throw that out there as another beach ball no but i'm I'm gonna volley it right back to you rick because it leads into one of our other questions about how do our disciplines how do the disciplines we teach respond to new methodologies new sources of knowledge right new forms new styles so how does that happen within your discipline because it sounds like by um, just what I'm going off of what you're saying right now is there may be some gatekeeping where that is done at the end of the line, right? When you're already right. certified, when you're already in your career, you're established, you're you're an authority. And, and what I hear is a lot of people advocating for maybe that can happen earlier. Maybe we need to open up students to that type of back and forth communication and, and talking about um, what the discipline is rather than just telling them what the discipline is. So innovation can be brought out a little bit earlier in this process? Or is it just by people who are established experts in the field? I think for me, this kind of bounces back to what Rika was saying earlier, which had me in goosebumps and made me want to cheer from my seat. So I have this extreme position of privilege. I have a PhD. I'm a faculty member. I get to work from home and be with my kids and have groceries delivered to my doorstep. I have so, so much privilege. But I still feel like I'm going to lose my job every day because I'm afraid that I'm going to say something wrong on this podcast or that my class is not going well. <laughs> Probably all of us to some degree. I've, I've um, experienced this at Miracosta. I've experienced this. I'm just putting that out there. So there you go. There's a whole other podcast right there for you. But so then just extrapolate that to how our students feel that if they don't get a grade, a certain percentage, or if they don't know certain terms or yada, 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 then they're never going to make it anywhere. And I think that this uh, leads into what you're asking, Sean, about new methodologies and new forms, is that I think if we offer our students new ways of approaching things and maybe instituting more of what is a very controversially named labor-based grading, it helps to emphasize the process, as Rika said, more so than a product or an echoing or a mirroring of a pre-existing mold. Like for instance, just to give a concrete example, so a problem with teaching Asian Pacific Islander topics and literature is that there's not a lot in our library. So there's not a lot of peer-reviewed academic journal articles on Pacific Islander literatures. And if they are, Alexis will know that there are some anthropological perspectives that are a little outdated and have some problematic terminology and viewpoints. So, um, you know, me and my students were very frustrated and I was like, well, you know, I was taught that to do research, it has to be in a library. It has to be validated with a call number and a publisher behind it and a copyright date. And frankly, that's bullshit because so much of the knowledge that we inherit and that we live by and survive by is transmitted orally, verbally, um, you know, using the African examples of griots, those storytellers who ensure the survival of their tribes. And so I started having students not get frustrated and dismiss an assignment because they couldn't find sources in a database, but (laughs) like just go to the prison where your brother is locked up and ask him some questions. And like, what have you learned about good questions when we talk in class? Like, what kinds of things do you want to know? How do you use like how and why to get to know the story about why your brother got there? And and why do you want people to know about that? So if we kind of take our privilege 
as a form of power, as Alexis would say, and reframe what terms like research mean. Like, what does that process look like? And how can we make it more accessible and meaningful for our students so that they have the skills to apply wherever they go and they can find a way to contribute to a culture of whatever industry they're going into rather than just fit in. Maybe it's because I'm Asian American, but I know the pressure of needing to fit in and be this model minority and just sit back and accept everything passively. But that leads to a lot of the mental health issues that Rika brought up earlier. And I don't want my students to be afraid that they're going to be failed every day because they said something wrong. So you know, I used to, like when I first started teaching, I would take points off for a freaking semicolon misusage. I was the colonizer, damn it. And, you know, over the years, I've tried to decolonize myself and say, hey, you wrote a thesis statement. It kind of sucks, but I'm going to give you full points because at least you did the work of trying. Like you're trying to apply what we're doing and everybody's first draft sucks. So let's all suck together points for everyone. That's it's that's huge. That's actually a really big deal. The people who have known me since I very first started teaching 20 whatever years ago it was, I was drill sergeant. Like literally, I they were call me that to my face and I was actually a little proud of that for a while. And it's taken how many decades, right, to understand that was that the thing that was actually important? Is that the thing that's going to get them to where is that the takeaway that you want them to have? And so it's it's as simple as breaking it down to wow, that was like a huge waste of my time taking that class, right? Because those were the things that were emphasized. And that's the difference in the other end of the spectrum being, it's not even really about the astronomy, but those discussions when we were allowed to talk about this and that that was the thing that contributed to my grade. And I didn't even know it contributed to my grade, but it was a huge part of what we did where we got to say I was contributing and I got to put my grade because that's what I'm doing in classes now. They're getting to grade themselves on whether they contributed in class. And, you know, half of them are doing what they're supposed to do. The other half may not, but I don't know. They may be lying about it. I don't know. That's not the point. The point is they're being allowed to take ownership and say, I get to decide whether I contribute or not. And I actually get to decide how that contributes to my grade. So really, this huge chunk of what you're grading me on, I'm utterly, completely and utterly responsible for that. My instructor, my facilitator gave up total control of this huge amount of the final grade so that I hope they take away. I was trying to get them to understand that whatever it is, whether it's their you know good experience, bad experience, um, whatever it is they're bringing into the classroom with them, right? That, that science is a thing that I can't do. They might still come away with that. I don't, I hope not, but they might still feel some of that, but at least they could hopefully come away with the idea that I was able to contribute I, we talked about, I contributed. I, I said words and they were okay. They didn't have to be eloquent words, right? I didn't have to string together a, a sentence out of a research paper. It didn't have to be that. That's not why we're here. I say that to them on the very first day in Astro 101. I'm under no grand delusions that I'm going to turn you into a little astrophysicist. I'm a little sad about that, but that's okay. I know who you are and I need you to understand that. I need you to understand that that's not what I'm expecting of you. I'm just expecting this to be our safe space to come together to try and, you know, leave the baggage behind, but we can't, I know we can't. We want to try though, because I want you to feel brave enough to contribute, whether it's contribute this much or that much, I don't care. I just want you in there with us talking about this and putting something out there. I mean, this, this makes me think of, I've recently gotten into social semiotics, which is the study of um, symbols and meaning making 
in society. And it's very enculturated. It's very specifically tied to whatever, I want to use the word discipline, because I guess that's what we're, we are here, disciplines. It's very specific to those disciplines. And so I just published a paper about that, right, about social semiotics and how it applies to learning and astronomy and physics. And what you realize is this whole damn thing is a culture, whether you liked it or not. Yeah. And you set up a language, right? I mean, right, because astronomers and physicists, you know, oh, we're just astronomers and physicists, got nothing to do with that. Math is our language. So I'm like, that's true. But um, did you also understand that you've set up a culture that's now lined with a 10 foot tall fucking fence on either side of it that the rest of the freaking planet can't get to because you built those walls around you and you're not letting people in. You've created an entire language with not just words, but symbols. The way your body language, when you give a talk and how you project that you're so much smarter than everybody else, do do you understand what's happening here? And that's what happens. And it makes me so angry because one of my big things is I, humans are born scientists, right? That, that's what, when you come out of the womb, you're a born scientist, right? That's, you get ticked off when the kid keeps knocking the pen right off the, the table and they keep doing it and you put it back up there and you're like, okay, please don't do that. And then what do they do, they do it again. I'm like, you don't understand. That child is conducting an experiment. That child does not understand that the same thing is actually gonna happen over and over and over again. They have to conduct those experiments for themselves. You can tell them, but it doesn't matter. They have a human brain. And as long as that human brain functions properly, they need to do that. We're born that way. And at some point, that just gets sucked right out of us. If you go through the U.S. education system, then that just gets sucked right out of you. And I don't know why or how, but I don't know. It makes me angry. I'm sorry. Somebody else talk now. No, no, no. That was. We need more rants like that on this podcast, Rika. That's amazing. And you brought us so much it ontologies epistemologies meaning making um, symbols <laughs> and that's what it is like we tell we tell kids that is what that is for it, there's room for exploration outside of that right? we're already setting them up and we think we're teaching them uh to be successful with using that particular tool or that particular thing but leaving no space for the creativity and innovation well, that and there's, there's a there's a subtle shift yeah. you call out there too, Rika, which is the shift from performance and product which is to play, which is not quite process. It's play, right? We, yep. you know, I love, I love to think of my, my, my son loves baseball and I had no idea what baseball was until he started playing it, right? <laughs> but, but I love to, it's such a perfect analogy for teaching because there's practice and then there's the game. And the game is the performance. That's the product. That's the end. That's why he goes to practice. That's where he wants to do well. But what happens in practice, he could smack a home run, it doesn't matter. He could strike out consistently, it doesn't matter. Because the only thing you do in practice is you play, right? And you build up. And then then you can use that and make decisions with that in these other spaces where you want to perform, right? And I think that maybe that's that's kind of what we're getting at here is, and, and that's that's why a thesis can suck in a first draft, right? Because a first draft is just practice. That's just a space to play out our ideas. It's that final draft, and it's only that because it's within this window of time and we have to say it's done and then we have to bless it as whatever, right? And that's, that's we want to resist that because that's the transactional piece. Um, but the, I, I, I think that's really helpful for me to think about, I mean, there's agency in play, right? And that's, that's kind of what we're grappling with here. Alexis? I, so first off, I just want to say like to, to Rika, I feel like we, we never really got to meet, but right, I, I teach all the anthropology, including like biological, I have a degree. And so I'm like, 
such a lover of science. You have no idea. And like you and I like say the same things in class. Like I could just hear us both. And like, I say like, yeah, like astronomy is like my second love. So like Neil deGrasse Tyson's like my hero. I have him on a shirt. So like, like I, and I had the same advisor in grad school for a while until oh, we both no realized way. that that guy was bat crap crazy and both of us went somewhere else. Yeah. <laughs> Not at the same time. Yeah. Cause he is a few years older than me. Yeah. Yeah. yeah he, he's my bud. Yeah. yeah. Well, that's so, so, I mean, that's the thing is like, yeah, it, 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 like instilling that love of science. And we have that same thing. Like everybody belongs. And I had a student ask me actually the other day, like, you know, and, and I was explaining, like, I don't expect you to be able to, you know, list all of the different species of humans like you will not remember these names that i said but you know having a, a basic understanding of evolution and mutations will help you to, to recognize why not wearing a mask and and not vaccinating fast enough is a problem but anyway i digress but i wanted i want to speak to rick's point for a moment because i think that it's important he makes the case about these uh uh what are they not degree certifications right certifications that you have to have in computer science and and I think oftentimes when we look at fields like computer science, as you're illustrating, or even business, and, and we think about like, okay, I have these certifications, therefore, right, then I'll go out and be successful in the field. And again, like the, the idea of like saying like, oh, like, let's, you know, do away with this or like, you know, the, the sort of conversations we're able to have in the social sciences about sort of a freeing up the way we approach a classroom don't seem really like relevant to what you're doing in computer science. But I, I, I want to challenge one thing is it, it's not that you're that it's good for the students to necessarily say, okay, we're not going to do these certifications because they're vital for their success. But how often do we question why those are the certifications or who gets those certifications or who decided? And it's not that that it, you're necessarily going to do away with them, but all of a sudden they start thinking about the, the invisible levers of power in society, like who gets to decide like what it means to be mm -hmm. a successful computer scientist in this field? Like who are the gatekeepers? And, and I think in fields like yours, maybe even more so than in like the humanities and social sciences, it becomes important because it is in your fields that those powers are the most invisible and that people are able to hide so much behind, right? Oh no, right? It, it, you know, it's math, it's numbers, it's certifications, whatever it might be, and and that then leads to the exclusion of other people. So it's not throwing the baby out with the bathwater and saying, "Oh no, we're not going to give you these certifications because that's important." But it's also pointing out, like, hey, students, let's spend you know like twenty minutes of class exploring the history of of how these certifications were established. Like, who who invented the computer? Like, who makes money from this? Like, you know, and 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 in that, what what I think might happen to, to, to Rika's point as well is that students who may not have originally seen themselves in sort of leadership roles in computer science might all of a sudden be like, hey, wait a minute, like, I, it's not just about the binary, right? It's also about thinking about who's going to lead these fields. And I, I think it's sort of like unspoken conversations that, that, could really do well. And, and so nobody, I, I just want to be clear, nobody would advocate for you to do. And of course, I, you are serving the students very well by, by teaching them those certifications. But I think that there are, there are conversations to be had, which highlight the, those areas of society, the, the, sort of those last bastions of, of, the, of the academy that, that can hide that power. 
those power structures, right? Uh, you know, in ways that like our fields just cannot anymore. I have to say too, that reminds me of a conversation that has been actually higher, uh, rising above the noise, I guess you would say at a level that I don't know that anyone in physics and astronomy would have really expected at that point in time. And that's that um, schools that uh, graduate programs in physics and astronomy are now having a very serious conversation about whether the physics GRE, which had always been required to get into almost any you know, graduate program in physics or astronomy, about whether, first of all, is it really required? And what the hell does it tell us? Does anybody ever thought about that, right? And, and so those conversations, I'm happy to say, I'm part of a discipline that is actually actively having those conversations. And a surprisingly high number of astronomy programs, graduate programs have actually just done away with the physics GRE completely. They, do, they no longer require it and they just tell you, you can submit it, but we're not gonna look at it. So okay. I'm proud to be part of a discipline that's thinking that. Side note, when I took the GRE, the math was just like, whatever. I literally sat there and filled out C for everything scored higher on math than in English. That's all I, you I need did, to know. <laughs> I did the random thing for the English part, if that tells you. There you go. When in doubt, Charlie out. See, Jade, you learned. You no, learned we, drew, we drew little patterns, little patterns on the bubbles, right? To spell things out on the answer yeah. sheet and just see what see, the hell happens. Rico and I, have I to know say, how to play It was one of system. the most demoralizing experiences I've ever had as a professional trying to, you know, a breakthrough the gatekeeping into academia taking the general GRE and the subject GRE was absolutely one of the most demoralizing experiences I've ever had I mean I left I remember leaving just the general I remember leaving there thinking was that test even in English I, I literally I felt that bad about myself as a human being when I left there and I'm not the sharpest tool in the shed but I'm not a total dumbass either I know some stuff and I really felt like I, I felt like I was not worthy of the degree that I was about to graduate with. It's interesting because we keep kind of coming back to this idea of like the threshold or the rubric or the thing that that you're trying to teach towards, which like I've always had this issue with rubrics <laughs> because it's always this. It, it's it's boiling down something that is complex and multifaceted and human oriented and making it this standard that you can check off, which is a in boxes. You're yeah. fitting people into the boxes, and that's says the person useful. who still uses rubric. It's useful for bureaucratic institutions. It's useful, you know, for I think that that's who's kind of interested in that is like, did somebody check this box off or not? One of the worst things I ever get from students. One of the, the comment that I hate the most is when uh, I, I do project-based learning, like almost exclusively, it's students are making things, you know, and that's, that's a great way. I think it's active, it's engaging, but then I'll get the student that comes to me and just says, is this good enough? And and I'm like, well, good enough for who? You know, like, <laughs> like what is it? What, I mean, I hate that because it sort of takes that creative energy and excitement and engagement in something sometimes that I love. I mean, it's, it's telling for me too, if they're done with it, you know, whatever, maybe I need to approach something differently. I, teaching is definitely a creative endeavor where we have to constantly challenge our own assumptions about things. Right. So it's telling for me when somebody says that too, but it's, it's the worst. It's like, is this good enough? And, and, and that's it. Do, do I meet the threshold to check the box? 
And that's never been what I think it should be about, right? So, and, and Carl, Carl, along with everybody else that's on right now, you've been dropping bombs for the past hour. So thank you for that. But we, we need to know what you teach. So what are these projects and, and what, are, what are you teaching? So I, I teach in media arts, uh, design, graphic design. I also teach programming like uh, for the web, JavaScript and gaming, game programming. I teach animation. I teach portfolio design, a pretty wide range of courses across the media arts spectrum. I think I've taught about 14 different subjects within media arts uh, in my career here. And, and you know, I, I, I'm just going to let this lead into some of what I've been thinking about a, a little bit in relation to design and media arts as, as you know, and culturally responsive teaching and equity minded teaching. I've been thinking a lot about like how design can apply to those things and what I like about design and how that can apply. And there is this a, a very trendy thing right now is this idea of design thinking. And it's a lot in traditional sort of business problems where it'd be like, let's get designers in and like approach this problem. But I think that it has some relevance to what we're doing and one of the things that design thinking is, it's a human-centered approach, for one. It's a process. It's a process that never really ends in many ways. Like, it, it kind of, once you're at the end, you kind of start again. And I think teaching is like that. It's like you implement something, and then you question it, and you test it, and you see how it works. And then you creatively tweak it and see if that works. And along the way, you try to gain a better understanding of what your problems are and who those users are. Like in, in my language, it'd be the user, right? And that's our students, that's the consumer or whoever it might be. But it starts really with this idea of empathy and having an understanding of, of your user and who they are and where their pain points are and where they're going to struggle and what it is they need, what's going to help their lives, right? What, what's going to make things easier for them and be better for them. And it also starts by challenging your own assumptions about how you think you should do something and, you know, how you would normally approach the problem, you know, thinking that you already know what it is and who the people are, right? So you kind of start by throwing away your assumptions and maybe we could say trying to get rid of our implicit bias in a way if we want to sort of bring it back to language that we might use, right? Kind of throw away your assumptions and you try to you know, spend some time getting a better understanding of, of the problem and the users, of, you know, that, that are having that problem and why it's a problem. And then after that, you know, you then you start kind of defining, getting some insights into your problems, you know, in relation to your the, the user. And then you start to come up with ideas and challenge your assumptions for maybe alternative solutions, alternative, you know, like different ways and that's play, as Curry says. It's like you iterate and you play and you come up with an idea and then you test that idea and you see if that resonates and why it works and why it doesn't work. And then, you know, maybe you implement that and then you come back again. And I think that's what we do as teachers all the time, you know, and that we can think of that as, as making teaching a little bit more culturally responsive because we are always trying to understand our students a little bit better to kind of understand who they are and what they need and where their pain points are, you know, like what's not coming through and to challenge our own assumptions and to sort of reinvigorate our own approach as well. Like I've had assignments I've loved for years. And at one point I just realized I'm totally bored with it. You know, I thought it was great, but now I'm so bored that the culture I'm building around that assignment is not like exciting, it's not engaging, it's not, and it's just be, you know, I thought this was something that was good. And the, that's when I find 
teaching the most exciting sometimes is when I'm going to try something else. Let me do it this way, you know, and coming back to it and then sort of thinking about where is it that where these went off the rails or started to like disconnect from who, who it's for, you know, like who this is for. Uh, but anyway, I teach in, in media arts and I've, I've been tr trying to think a little bit about how I can apply lessons from my own discipline to the subjects that, that we're, you know, talking about here as well. Can I just say really quickly about the, the assumptions? That's brilliant, Carl. I had the great privilege of being on a panel at the Astronomical Society of the Pacific meeting in December where our panel, that was the topic, but it was supposed to be assumptions that we all made about going remote, right? Like going remote teaching and how this, and it completely evolved into a discussion of exactly what you were just saying. It turns out this is you know, one of the great morsels of culturally responsive teaching. I mean, we use that as a buzz phrase kind of sort of, right? But it really comes down to knowing who your audience is at, at a bigger level than the demographics, right? At a deeper level than the demographics, knowing that and being able to do that, challenge your own assumptions or throw them out completely. And then we wrapped up the whole panel with a discussion of, wow, so how many of us are not going back to the way things were, right? When we go back into the physical classroom. I'm gonna try. I'm gonna attempt to get back to this question for a third time. I think Alexis tried to get to it. I tried to get to it. Uh, you know. So I know Carl and Rick. You have a lot of certificates in in your programs. So talk about the balance between creating things for the user, for the student, and uh, creating experiences or facilitating experiences for them, and and allowing their agency within that and also having to fulfill the requirements for these industry standards. If we could kind of have a conversation about that. Go ahead, I'll, Carl. One thing that might differentiate my field from Rick's somewhat is the one thing I like about the fields of web design and web development, the fields of graphic design, in a way is you, you don't need a degree. You, you don't, you don't, you know, I, I could say the degree, oh, maybe it will give you some credence in, the minds of certain people, but really what separates you is, is your actual work. It's your portfolio and it's what you can show to demonstrate the values that you can bring to an organization or a client or, you know, or whatnot. And so because it's very product-based in a way, like it's, it's the things you have that can show your knowledge as opposed to maybe something that's, that's a test or a, a degree. I, I think that, that, changes things a little bit, you know, in that, in that students can work towards uh, showcasing their own talent as opposed to trying to get this particular thing. So I, in my courses, I don't have a lot of tests. I do have them in some, I do quizzes and things or whatever, but it's not compared to other disciplines. They're exclusively graded on projects that they complete, right? So, and I get students I'm fortunate to have students that are there because they want to be there because these are, are, are classes that really aren't just you're required to come and take this right so I mean, if you don't want to be a part of this like I'm, I'm there to facilitate your learning, you know, yes, provide instruction but resources and support and guidance, you know, to help navigate this, and it's better with a community you're going to do better learning together it's going to be better uh, than if you're just trying to do this on your own, you know, so that's why they're there. Anyway, like that, that I think I have some some fortune in that I'm not training for a particular certification per se, you know, and that that definitely might differ than other industries that that really are preparing 
students for very strict things. Cool. All right. So a couple of things. I'm, I'm writing down all these notes of jamming things in because I'm, I'm looking at the clock here. So I guess, you know, I, you know like Carl, we, you know, I, I, I pride myself on throwing spaghetti on the wall and seeing what sticks. And unfortunately, you know, for everything, 10 things you throw up there, one thing sticks, like, oh, this is cool. But like, I think what the hardest thing is with us is that, you know, you try that, but you can't change too many things throughout a semester. I'm like, damn, I got to wait a whole nother semester before I could go try this. It's like, ah, it has to go faster. One point. Second point on the certs. And, and these certs are kind of interesting in that, you know, it's kind of a ticket in there, but it, you still won't get the job. It gets you the interview. You still have to know what you always tell me. Students, you still have to know what you're doing. That is just going to be something. And, you know, I could take a book and I can go cram and, you know, people, or you could take a one week boot camp and you could take the test and pass the test. Maybe I'll get the interview. But still, when I was interviewing students in, in, in the industry, I'd always say, go do something. I mean, go do this and you do it or you don't. If you did great, you know, I'll hire you, you know, potentially. But if not, you know, go, go back, learn this and then come back. And then also touching on the whole community thing, you know, I challenge um, this group of this and all, all other instructors. Uh, and and at least this works well in my field, but Discord. So we have tons and tons of gamers. So I'm like, and, and this just hit me like a lightning bolt. Again, one of those experiments to throw on the, um, you know, wall. But I was in class maybe two or three semesters ago. And I'm, you know, a little bit frustrated because, you know, you put out something, an email, announcements and everything else. Like, all right, it sounds like the class didn't get these. You know, how do I get the word out to you guys? And then within like two seconds, two people instantaneously said Discord. And like in, within another second, two other people said Discord. I'm like, all right, if I create a Discord server, I can communicate that way. Yes, it's magical, guys. Honestly, that is one of those spaghetti... That was like a double throw of spaghetti up there. And it's like this whole community culture. And these guys are like out there talking to each other, talking cybersecurity, talking homework, talking everything. Like, oh my gosh, this is so absolutely amazing. So I don't know where that fits in this. I just wanted to share it because it's just so cool. And it's been such a huge success for me throughout all my classes, club IT, everything else. So yeah. Yeah, I think, I think one thing that we haven't called out directly, but we've all been talking about is that students are choosing to enroll in college and they're choosing to enroll in our classes. And Carl and Rick, you're, you're more specialized. So you get students who are, they see your class as that pathway to that job or to that sort of skill set, whatever. They look to Jade and I in English class and maybe Rika and we're a little less <laughs> specialized. So we they have I'm to- I'm the path that. of least resistance to their sure. physical science lecture credit. There That's what they think. Yeah. But nonetheless, they're taking Jade and you know my class because they want to get through it to get to presumably to get to the next stage, right? And so, and I think, like I said, we've all been talking about this, and and if we think about that, you know, this notion of scaffolding, it, it, as long as we're decolonizing our sense of teaching, if we're if we're skeptical of our disciplines and and how what cultures they're rooted in, and we look at our students and we say, you're choosing to be here. And we take that role of as, as a, a facilitator to affirm in them, you know, then even if it's an English class and you have no business or, or interest in English, I can still empower that student, right, to be a scientist, to be a mathematician, to be, my class is not the gate, right? My class is a space where, you know, your voice matters and your interest matters and, 
and I can't just create space and say, now take it. It's, but there's a scaffolding here to make you confident in that as well. I'll call it out in you, I'll affirm it in you. And here's the scaffolding to give you that confidence to, to keep going on to the goals that yeah, you've set. So I think that's, yeah, go ahead, Jade. Curry, that's such a great point because I think all of us from different disciplines, we really need to keep in mind too that we're doing culturally responsive stuff for our students, but also to each other's classes. Yeah. Uh, you know, my brother is a PhD in biochemistry, which I understand nothing about except that he knows how to make meth and bombs. So I agree with everything he says. My brother does that too. Well, not really, thing, but the first thing. Anyway. Oh, that's scary. <laughs> um, anyway, um, he's always asking me for like the humanity side of it. Like, you know, what were some of the stories that went on during um, the atomic bomb testing? You know, like, can you tell me more about that and how it affected people so that I can then teach my students the ethical dilemmas raised by being able to create a friggin' bomb? <laughs> so I think that, you know, we best serve our students when we're responding to each other's cultures of disciplines. And that's why I really appreciate conversations like this, because I feel like I get a better understanding of the cultures that you're living and working and thinking in and so that's a, such an important point Craig. thank you yeah and i just want to say thank you all um alexis what are they taking our classes for i think they might be like they might i was laughing at that too i was like is, i bet you curry doesn't even know what i teach yeah, <laughs> like, he doesn't know any anthropology, anthropology. You know what i think college. though you were like anthro who that's right no, they, well first Wait, off like, that's, why that's, are you surrounded by skulls alexis you're so weird no first off that's a clothing store or <laughs> um or it's like jurassic park is that right and then with psychology they're like is that psychology entomology <laughs> They either think we're psychology and sociology. They think, is that psychology or are you all socialists? And I'm like, not all of us, but yeah. So yeah, they're taking it for some reason. You all were amazing. Thank you so much for being on. This was a great conversation. And I, I think the audience is going to enjoy this one. Thanks, Thank everybody. you guys for having us. Honored. Thank you. Bye. Thank you. So... That episode, um, I really don't know what to add to it. Uh, uh, I think, Sean, you and I talk about this all the time, but just recording these episodes, I, it, I, I think about so much. It challenges my teaching in so many ways. I feel stretched. Uh, so I'm going to let our colleagues and what they said um, kind of stand. But as we end this episode, we wanted to take a moment to point out that, that we've been doing this for a year now. Um, yeah, and so and where we started was pre-pandemic, and when we were in the thick of our first season, pandemic hit. So I thought we'd take this moment to kind of reflect a little bit. So how are you feeling about about a one year? One year. I period? love it. You know, like this started off as a conversation between us, and it's really evolved into a lot. And yes, with COVID and moving things remote and being online, it changed our plans, and it feels like our our plans change a lot, but. The, the podcast, I feel like, continues to thrive, and that's because of the guests that we bring on yep. and because of the team that we have. And I, too, have just enjoyed these conversations. I really feel like this is the best professional learning development type of opportunities that I've had thus far in my career as a faculty member. And so I'm just so appreciative of everyone, you know, especially students and our colleagues that have given their time and their expertise and and trusted us to, 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 to be on our show and, and um, yeah. have contributed a lot. But, you know, back to the team. So yeah. 
The the listeners don't often get to hear these voices, but they're always here. Our sound engineer, Kelly, and we have James Garcia, who's been doing show notes and social media this whole time. I just want to throw it over to y'all and like, what, what has this experience been like for you? And maybe, Kelly, you can go first. Sure. Hello, I'm Kelly. I get to listen on, on these amazing conversations. And then afterwards, I'm the one that gets to listen to them over and over and edit them to perfection. And I've gotten a lot out of this experience. So thank you guys so much for including me. And this internship's been absolutely amazing. I learned a lot from the conversations. And then also I get to use my skills. Uh, we use Pro Tools at school. So I have Pro Tools on my home computer and that's how I edit these podcasts. And I'm really able to apply all the skills and hopefully bring some value. Yeah, and as Kelly is still a student here at Maricosta, and I think that that is probably one of the things that I appreciate about the composition of our team is that we have different stakeholders at the institution that are um, that are contributing. So thank you so much for everything, everything that you do, um, Kelly. You do such a, an amazing job. Yeah, totally. My I, honor and pleasure. Hey, nice. <laughs> and that 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 was a core sort of you know, goal we had for this podcast that it would be faculty and students consistently, right? And and I think of the things we did to pivot around the pandemic, that's one thing we've been able to thankfully um, um, keep keep true. And, and Kelly, having you on the team, uh, I think has been a big part of why that's, that's the case, right? It keeps us anchored in that original sort of ethos. So that's awesome. James, how, how about you? How are you felt that the year has gone? Boy, so being that this is my first year as a faculty member, associate faculty member, when I started this, I was still a student at Cal State San Marcos working on my master's degree. So I was still a student doing this while interning, while starting a podcast. And I remember our very first episode on the syllabus, I was writing my own syllabus for my own class. And I was like, oh my gosh, I wrote it how I thought it was supposed to be written, you know, the way a syllabus has been written for you your whole career. And then you hear these people that come onto this podcast talk about how the syllabus should be not like the old way, but this way. And not only from that episode, but moving forward, every single episode after that, I'm learning so much more, especially as a new associate faculty member in the sociology department, so many new people. And like, well, not only was it a learning experience, but I learned that Maricosta has some like insanely brilliant people, like who just have these insanely amazing ideas. And I'm just like, oh my goodness, I work with Sean. So I already think he's like an amazing dude. Then I met you, Curry. It's like, here's another amazing person. Then I met Kelly. Here's this amazing audio person. Like all these people just amazing in my life coming in out of nowhere. And (laughs) come to think like this little podcast we started now has almost 2,500 downloads um, just on Podbean alone. And that's not accounting for all the other stuff we do, like on Spotify, on Google and all the other places we have our podcasts. And like, just to see where we are now one year after the fact is I'm super proud of all of you and all of us. And like, I hope we can continue to do this not only for ourselves, but for the campus and beyond. So thank you for having me here. And seriously, we're doing big things coming, moving forward too. No, and that, I mean, I've been teaching, I don't know, 15 years now. And I'm still like, like I said earlier, just blown away. You know, oh, I, I need to try that. Or I haven't thought of it that way, you know? So I'm, James, you know, your perspective, I, I share that experience, definitely. And, and one thing that I'll add is like, the as i've said this before i think on the podcast as teachers you know getting a discussion is something that we set up we hope it goes well there seems to be kind of like uh you know going back to culture right like the way that those discussions 
go in our classrooms and the way that discussions go in faculty meetings. And I feel like we've created a space that allows people to really be a lot more free and, and, and not restricted in the ways that those, those spaces restrict us. And I've heard my colleagues who I've worked with for a long time, and I've heard stu students that I feel like are, are a little bit more reserved in the classroom come on here and just have these really beautiful conversations with us. And, and they have so much to offer. And so I, I, I just love to just sit listen. I, I'm in a position where I have to do a lot of speaking. And I feel like in this podcast, there's, there's just times when I could sit back and listen to as James was saying, the brilliance of others. And, and I've enjoyed every minute of it. Yeah, for sure. For sure. And I love that about this format too. And it's, it's also, I've heard this from colleagues uh, on this podcast and, and outside the podcast. It's, you know, one of the things we do in our teaching when we plan everything like to the minute is we don't allow for, we don't allow for ourselves to teach in responsive ways to the moment, right? Like we, and oftentimes it becomes a comfort zone that we create, right? Like everything's planned out, everything's gonna be perfect. There's gonna be some space for students to contribute, but it's framed or it's scaffolding, it's it towards or, you know. So I really value that about this podcast format, the kind of authentic conversation. And, I, and I'm really wanting to bring that into my classroom more often too, right? And, and But one thing that does make me think about is just the year we've lived through um, in this pandemic and how really the opposite was needed for a lot of us. You know, we, we almost needed more guardrails to get through this time. Our students needed more kind of just straightforward experiences. So, and I think that kept, kind of crept into the podcast a bit too. We, we were a bit safer than mm -hmm. we want to be. We want to be a bit more True. dangerous you know, mm -hmm. in, on the Safe Topics podcast. But I think that's somewhere where we want to go next. We want to kind of get back to that, you know, let's trust each other with controversy. Let's hear each other. Let's, let's you know, in, in, engage good faith arguments and then benefit from that exchange, you know, have, like, you know, listening to it on the outside. Yeah. And moving forward, we want to get back to that, you know, more, more dangerous topics. We're going to try to do that as much as possible and just having those authentic conversations. And at this one year mark, we are happy to announce that we are adding to the team. And I'm going to, I'm going to let the, let the listeners be forced to uh, listen to the next episode where we're going to introduce a new co-host and it is a student co-host, a student at Miracosa. And that's all I'm going to give because I'm going to let that, that, introduce themselves and um, I just hope that you all uh, look forward to having another voice on here a student voice who will be an equal to ours uh, to Curry and, and my voice on our platform here yep and on that cliffhanger <laughs> that's the word I was looking for Curry I couldn't think of it I was the like what do you call that and I was like I think it's a Sylvester Stallone movie from the 90s well that I think that's true too well, thanks, everybody. And thank you to the people who listen to this. We yep. hope you enjoy it. We hope you get some value out of it. We sure do. We'll probably just keep doing it, even if no one's listening. But yep. I hope you are. Totally. Thank you. Thank you. This episode is supported by the Miracosa Foundation's Innovation Grant. The Safe Topics podcast is produced and engineered by Kelly Barnett. James Garcia handles promotion, student recruitment, and research. You can find us on Twitter, Instagram, and safetopics.podbean.com. Find us on Apple and Spotify. Please rate and subscribe. 
Thanks for listening.